First uh, Peter chapter one. Let me read verses three through twelve for us. Verses one and two. Peter does uh, what is a standard um, introduction. He he tells us who he's writing to and offers them a sort of word from God, a benediction. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then he leans in to what is in fact a long run-on sentence. <laughs> Verses 3 through 13 are one long sentence in the Greek, uh, very helpful for those of us who struggle with run-on sentences in our grammar. Even the inspired apostles use run-on sentences. Uh, But Peter wants us to, he's building on one basic theme throughout this lengthy text, and he wants us to see it in rapid succession, just how important it is to have hope, living hope, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Well, we all need hope, don't we? We all need hope. Hope is what moves us from day to day. It's what motivates us throughout the day. Every endeavor, every relationship, every opportunity is either motivated, either fueled, or stopped by your hope or hopelessness. We attempt things because we have certain kinds of hope about them, and we stop doing things or fail to do things because they appear to be a hopeless endeavor for us. Hope is necessary. It's the stuff of life. We need hope, especially in this fallen world, don't we? So the question that Peter wants us to consider in this text is about the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is your hope placed in? In what are you hoping today? 
I am borrowing this sort of framework from a friend of mine, but I think this is a good way to ask the question. Peter in this text has something to say about the present market value of our heavenly hope. In other words, he wants us to consider how much the Christian's hope is worth now, today. It it is worth something in the future, and we'll talk about that. But now, today, in the midst of difficulties and trials, what does the hope of the resurrection mean to you? And so the question I've been asking myself this week, and I want you to ask yourselves now is, in what am I placing my hope? Perhaps you've never thought about that before. Some of us just kind of blindly walk through life assuming that when things are good, we have increased hope in them, and when things are bad, our hope kind of diminishes, almost like hope is like one of those dimmer switches that they put in new builds, new construction, and you can kind of turn the light up a little bit or turn the light down a little bit. And when things are kind of bad, the light kind of dims down, and when things are going pretty well, the light kind of brightens up. But I want you to think for a moment, in what are you placing your hope? Perhaps... Your hope is placed in material possessions, that if you simply have enough stuff, you'll be happy and you can go on in life. I wonder if your hope is placed in the simple change of time. Many of us in the midst of difficult circumstances think that surely this won't last forever, and if I just wait long enough, it'll get better. I wonder if your hope is placed in retirement. That if you work hard enough now and save up enough money now and things in the economy don't change, then I'll reach the point in life where I can stop laboring so much and finally start to enjoy life. I'm really hoping for a nice retirement. Maybe your hope is placed in the medicine you're taking or the treatment you're receiving, and you hope that it will be effective. If only this disease would go away, I could finally breathe a sigh of relief. I hope it works. Maybe your hope is in your children, that they'll grow up to be more successful than you, or in your marriage, that your spouse would be agreeable with you, or in your reputation, that you'll gain acclaim in your chosen field of work. And if those things all happened, if I were to get all those things, a happy family, delightful children, and a good job with a good reputation, then, then I'd be really content. I hope those things come true for me. Perhaps your hope is in your good works. I know the gospel, but really at the end of the day, if I were to strip away all of the masks I wear... And if you were to expose the deepest recesses of my heart, perhaps in reality what I'm hoping for is that I'll live a good enough life to be accepted by God when I meet him face to face. That is a paralyzing doctrine, a paralyzing way of living. And frankly, it's the way of every other religion in the world than Christianity. If I live a good enough life now, and I can't know it, I can only hope when I get to the future, tomorrow, eternity, the next life, 
and I'm judged for it, I hope the scales tip in my favor. My friends, if you are hoping in any of those things, you will find yourself both temporally and eternally disappointed. This is why many of us feel like life is an emotional roller coaster. Have you experienced that before? That you're really high one day because your relationships are good and the bank account looks fat and your health is doing pretty well and you, you haven't gotten mad at anybody or kicked the dog recently and so I'm doing okay and I feel great. But then as soon as there's a, a, a tension or a, a friction in a relationship, as soon as I have to spend out of my emergency fund, as soon as that other guy or gal gets the promotion I was hoping for, as soon as this person lets me down, and as soon as I get angry at somebody on the road and feel myself sinning in my heart, I go way down low again. And that's a sign that you're anchoring your hope to something temporal, something other than Christ. Your health will fail. Look around you. There are people in this room who are battling the worst diseases known to mankind. Each of us, and some of you younger folks don't really know it yet, but we're all aging. And things that didn't used to creak, creak. And things that didn't used to hurt, hurt. And again, just like Eric mentioned in his prayer, Pastor Stewart is down in Birmingham right now preaching in the place of Dr. Harry Reeder, who was vibrant and lively, and though 75 years old, his life was taken in a moment in a car accident. He was supposed to be out of the country this weekend and next on vacation. That's, that's done. That's gone. And if we place our hope in things that don't last, we'll be let down. People will let you down. You let other people down. Reputations change, and there is no one who does good. Scripture teaches us very plainly that no one can stand before the holy, holy, holy God of the universe, having earned enough righteousness to enter into his heaven. We're all sinners, Paul says, and we've fallen short of the glory of God. And Peter wants us to know in this text that there is only one thing into which we can place our hope with any real confidence, and that's the resurrection reality of Jesus Christ our Lord. He is alive forevermore, the Bible tells us, and so too will we be if we are in Him. He is in heaven now, Paul says in Colossians, and even though we can't see Him now, we believe and we rejoice through all of life's circumstances because we know, according to the Apostle John, that when we finally see Him, we'll be made like Him as He is. So the question I want you to ask in what are you hoping today? Let's look at what Peter says about this hope. The first thing that Peter teaches us in verses 3 through 5 here of our text is that this hope is protected by God. This hope is protected by God. Now, this entire paragraph, and you may not catch it at first glance, is filled with covenantal language. Covenantal language. Peter, I think, is explicitly trying to draw our attention to the relationship between the gospel of Jesus Christ preached in the New Testament and the prophecies about Jesus Christ proclaimed in the Old. 
He's linking the Bible together. We have this uh, wrong notion in a lot of circles in our day and age that the God of the Old Testament was kind of a big old cosmic meanie. You know, he just he made a law and he was really strict about it. And he wouldn't even let them wear polycotton blends, and they weren't allowed to eat like the best kind of foods. You know, we all know that, right? Like when Christ came, bacon came, right? Like we all, they didn't have that in the old covenant, but now. Right? And so we have this idea that God was just this strict, kind of mean, looking down and testing people and firing lightning bolts when they did wrong. But now, according to one heretic, love one. And so now we have access to the good God of the New Testament. Uh, but Peter doesn't want us to think that way. In fact, he's going to use, especially in this evening's sermon, some really explicit language from Leviticus linking the God of the Old Testament Israel to the God of the New Testament Israel, the church, the one church of God throughout the ages. And so Peter wants us to see the covenantal relationship between our being in Christ and what he's promised us and this same God that we have understood to be the one God throughout history. So he calls him the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in the Old Testament, this idea of God being the Father of his people is, is replete throughout the pages of the Old Testament. God calls Abraham and promises him sons. And so there's this paternal sort of lineage thing that that starts to unfold for us in the early parts of Genesis. And he's called the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now in Exodus, when God shows up and begins speaking to Moses at the burning bush, he tells him in chapter 4 of Exodus, go back to Pharaoh and tell him, Israel is my firstborn son. And I want them to come out into the wilderness to worship me. And so we have this notion of God being the father of his people. Uh, Later on in the Old Testament, especially in places like 2 Samuel 7, where God makes a promise to David about one of his descendants, he says, he will be a son to me and I will be his father. And so across the pages of the Old Testament, especially when God is making covenantal promises to his people... We have this idea that God is the father of his chosen ones. And now Peter brings all that to a climax in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He says, blessed be the God and father, not of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not of David and his son, but of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one testified to in the Gospels. He's the son of God and he's our elder brother, which makes us children of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Now, the word that Peter uses for great mercy is the word that the Greek translators of the Old Testament used to describe God's covenant faithfulness. And you know that word. You've heard it before. Chesed. God's covenant fidelity, his steadfast assurance of promise, his stubborn, relentless pursuit of keeping his word, his love for us is his chesed. And that's what Peter alludes to here, his great mercy. By the way, it's not God's mercy. That's enough, isn't it? It would be enough, like in Exodus 34, for God to say, by the way, I am merciful. And we would think to ourselves, That's, that doesn't make any sense. Why would God be merciful to us sinners? He should be wrathful towards us sinners. 
He should be angry at us in our sin. But God says in Exodus 34 to Moses, I am merciful and gracious. But Peter doesn't stop there here, does he? Talk about superlative love. Peter says, according to his great mercy. It's fu- we, just, we don't wrap our minds around this often enough, I don't think. We think of God in these little categorical terms. He's merciful and gracious. He's forgiving and loving and all this other stuff. And those things are wonderful. And they are. But Peter says, let me take it a step further. It's his great mercy that causes us to be born again to a living hope. It's almost like Peter, is, he's, he's lost the ability to communicate enough how merciful God is. So he's got to tack these superlatives onto his mercy. You can read every hymn in the hymn book. You can scour every dictionary of the English language. You can find every adjective known to man to amplify the mercy of God, and you will never, ever ever summit the mountain of God's mercy towards you. Do you know that? It's according to his great mercy he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, this idea of being born again also has Old Testament connotations, both in creation and in redemption. Think with me for a moment about the creation story. God makes Adam and Eve and places them in a garden. And in chapter 2 of Genesis, it tells us that God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and caused him to become a living creature. Adam could no more make his dead body alive than you and I can make our dead souls alive in Christ. In creation, God breathes life into his man and makes him a living creature. And in redemption, think about the Exodus with me again. How many of the Israelites blew on the Red Sea to part it? How many of them caused frogs to jump out of the Nile and plague the land of Egypt? How many of them went to their neighbor's houses and killed the firstborn son of all the Egyptians? How many of them held up umbrellas to block the sun out so it would be pitch dark over the land of Egypt for three days? Zero. None of them, because they could affect nothing of their redemption. They could do nothing to free themselves. They could do nothing to part the sea, nothing to feed themselves or find water in the wilderness, nothing to bring themselves to Mount Sinai, nothing to enter into covenant with God. Indeed, in our scripture reading this morning in Joshua 24, we read that he is the Lord our God, and he brought us out of Egypt. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He has made us alive in Christ Jesus. All of our salvation is the work of God. You know, I've heard it jokingly said one time, I don't deny it either, by the way, that if men had to give birth to children... It would have been Adam, Eve, Cain, end of humanity. (laughs) Adam couldn't have handled that twice. Likewise, it's true that if you yourself had to make yourself conceived and then bring yourself forth in birth, it would have been Adam, Eve, nobody. Cain couldn't have conceived himself. 
and he couldn't have forced his way out when he got tired of being inside the womb. You and I do not affect our own existence, at least the inception of it. Somebody else has to come together to bring life where there was none, and the physiological process that God put into a woman's body to bring forth a baby is not reliant on you in the womb, in utero, without thought or reason to cause it to happen. And the same is true for us in Christ. God causes us to be born again to a living hope. Isn't that amazing? Which means, think about this for a second. We've already admitted in our prayer of confession that we're all sinners. We sin because we're sinners, and we're sinners because we sin. We're totally depraved. Scripture tells us we're dead in our sins and trespasses and without hope or God in the world, it says in Ephesians chapter 2. We have nothing to show for ourselves. The Lord tests the heart of men to see if there are any who do righteousness, and there is not one. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, it says in Isaiah 53. All of us have turned away from God to our own way. And in spite of that, in fact, because of that, God looks down on you and me in great mercy and causes us to be born again. Causes it. That's amazing. It's amazing that he would do such a thing to such people as you and me. Chief sinners, like Paul says. This is God's covenant faithfulness. This is him keeping his promises. And this is the foundation of our living hope. Our living hope. He's caused us to be born again. And he's caused us to have great hope. Well, the hope, hope in the Bible is not some vague wish. Like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, but I'm not sure and I can't trust the weatherman. Hope in the Bible, is a certain expectation of a future event which has been promised by God. It's a sure thing. It's a guarantee. And it's why Peter grounds our hope in this life in something that God has already proven he will do for his sons and daughters. Look at in verse 4. Excuse me, verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, and then he explains what that means, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, he means two things here. He certainly means that we have hope because Jesus has been raised, and it's that resurrection from the dead in which we find our justification, according to Paul in Romans chapter 4. That's true. But what he also means to draw our attention to is the fact that God raised Christ from the dead means that he can and will raise us from the dead. And so our hope of life, our hope of this eternal inheritance that he talks about in the next verse is rooted in things that God's already shown us. He's already done it. He's already proven Jesus is his son, and you and I in Christ are sons and daughters. And so what God does for his son Jesus, he promises for all of us. And so if God can raise Jesus from the dead and exalt him to his right hand, the sure reality of his resurrection means hope for us, hope that can't waver or be lost because we've already seen the effects of it in Christ. Whatever the inheritance is, which we're coming to, it's guaranteed because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so we have a living hope, a living hope, living hope because we have a living Savior, and it's in Him that we place our hope. Think for a moment 
here, I'm sure many of you understand what it means or what it feels like to have hope die. Even just saying those words kind of casts a, a shadow over the room, doesn't it? What it feels like to have hope die. You go to the doctor hoping that this thing you've been doing will work or this next treatment will be available or this whatever fill in the blank that you're struggling through. You're kind of building yourself up. I don't want to get too hopeful, but boy, this would be good news. You college students or young, uh, near-to-be high school graduates, and you think, I hope I get into that school. I've been taking tests. I've been doing applications. I've been looking for, uh, for um, scholarships, and I'm really hopeful that it's all going to work out. Then you get that bad diagnosis or that rejection letter from the school. Or whatever it is, there are countless examples of what it means to have hope die, and you felt that. And when we place our hope in things of this earth, whether they be people, whether it be finances, whether it be health, whether it be medical care, or whether it be the person with whom you have shared love for over 50 years, you will get let down. You will have reason to become hopeless. Things will fail you. And if your hope is in yourself, you will fail yourself. We all know this experientially. We've all let ourselves down and not accomplished things we set out to do, and others have let us down. Which is why Paul, or excuse me, Peter here does not say that we have been born to a living hope in which we keep trying our hardest and applying the truth of God's word and living according to the law. And those are the things that grant us eternal hope. Instead, he says, Your hope is living because Christ is alive and we hope in him. That's good news. And that frees us, doesn't it, from all of the burden of the ebb and flow of life and life circumstances because Christ is sure and eternal and he never changes. If your hope is in that, how can you lose hope? Well, Peter here, uh, I think, and I, I hope this is a helpful image, he's reflecting here. I mentioned that this section is talking about the preservation of the protection of our hope. He says that our inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, is kept in heaven for you. It's being kept there. And then he goes on in the very next sentence or very next clause in verse 5 to say, you who by God's power are being guarded or kept through faith for this salvation to be revealed in the last time. What this is, what Peter's doing here is he's drawing our attention to the two hands of God in our salvation. On the one hand, God in heaven is guarding by his power and might, holding in his clenched fist, which no one can break into your eternal inheritance. There is no more secure vault in all the world than God's almighty hand. And your inheritance is there. It's with him. It can't be torn out of his hand. It can't become corrupt or defiled, and it can't perish. It'll never fade. He is preserving it in heaven for you. It's waiting. 
And on the other hand, and we're about to see this in the next verses, we're going to go through trials in this life and experience difficulty, which all of you are thinking, yep, that's my experience. You know it. I said in the morning service, if you haven't experienced suffering in this life, you simply haven't lived long enough. Every child here who has stubbed their toe once understands that you're going to experience difficulties in this world of some kind or another, of varying degrees. But have hope because you we are being guarded. We're being kept by God. Now, Peter could have told us that you are being guarded by God's command and kept for this imperishable inheritance in heaven. Or you are being guarded by God's providence And so sometimes there are unseen causes that will affect your life, and they'll lead to the final outcome which God intends for you to experience in this life leading to the next. And both of those things would be true. God has decreed your preservation and perseverance, and God affects it through primary and secondary causes in this life. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says you're being guarded by what? By God's power. God's power. Once again, not your own. God's power. Well, I wonder what the Bible has to say about God's power. Well, just in brief, the Bible tells us that the whole universe, which by the way, sits in the span of that very hand in which you are being kept, was created with a word. And it's being upheld by the word of his power. Every twinkling star, every ray of sunshine and degree of warmth that we experience in this world, every movement of this earth as it hurtles through space, every beat of your heart, every fleck of dust across the cosmos, every blade of grass that grows and leaf that falls from the tree, every bird that gives birth or deer that gives birth in the field, every hair on your head, Everything in all of creation happens, exists according to God's power, and He has directed all that power to you to preserve you for heaven. Think about that. Think about that for a second. God is not just up in heaven going, well, I love them, all right, and they're saved now. Let's go check this out over here. And he just, you know, we're, he's already decreed it, and so it's not going to get messed up, obviously. But he doesn't just turn his back and know in his omnipotence that we'll end up where he wants us. He directs and assembles and orients all of his power to the preserving and keeping of his people. You, my brothers and sisters, are being kept by God's power. And frankly, we don't really believe that, do we? Because when things go sideways and suffering happens and life interferes with our relationship with God, we imagine God, like us, pacing around the living room, trying to figure out what to do to help us out, because it sure doesn't feel like he's there. We need, and I mean daily reminders. I believe the hymn writer said, I need thee every hour of this reality, that we are being preserved by God according to his power. Not out of his power, not with part of his power, but according to his great power, his great mercy, 
in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That's hopeful. That gives us hope, doesn't it? And we need this hope because we're going to experience trials in this life. Look with me at the following verses. It tells us, Peter tells us that we're being purified by these trials. What Peter wants us to think about is the fact that Christians alone can experience joy in the midst of true tears. Here's what I didn't say. I didn't say that Christians alone can cry tears of joy. Everybody can do that. You could be moved by a beautiful piece of art or a beautiful piece of music or a wonderful event or a delightful relationship or the right piece of food that you eat. Um, I think there are some diets that will prevent you from ever experiencing that sort of joy in food, but you can experience tears of joy in any walk of life. And so that's not what I mean. Many people think, well, I'm not a Christian and I have joyful tears all the time and I can have hope at the, in the midst of a trial that it'll get better. That's not what Peter's talking about. Peter is telling us that Christians alone can experience real joy, real hope, eternal, grounded, foundational hope in the midst of real trials because our joy is rooted in the living hope of an eternal reward that exceeds anything this life can offer. Everything this life can offer, thieves can break in and steal, rust can corrupt, moths can eat, and it will fade away. Even the promised land given to Israel was taken and was overrun, and disease ran across it from north to south. It is only our inheritance in heaven where we store up treasure with God that nothing can defile or corrupt it. It is imperishable. And that's what gives us the ability to hope in in the midst of tears. You see, there are trials in this life. And Peter wants us to know that they are brief, they are necessary, they are grievous, but they happen according to God's love. Look at what he says. He says, in this you rejoice, the rejoicing being the revelation of Jesus Christ and the eternal, eternal inheritance. Though now for a little while... If necessary, you experience trials of various kinds, or various trials, he says. Now, for those of you who have been ill or in bad relationships or jobless or whatever difficulty you're going through right now for a lengthy period of time, you might think, little while? I'm not sure Peter knows what he's talking about. It feels like I've been experiencing various trials for a long, long while. Remember, Peter is the same one who tells us that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. I remember, I'm not a mathematician. Abigail's in fifth grade, and she has already, I can't help her with homework anymore. Uh, I tell people I became a pastor because there was no math requirement seminary. Um, I don't know what the percentage is here. One of you can work this out and correct me at the door or tell everybody else via Facebook or something like that. The reason it feels like a lifetime for a four-year-old in the month leading up to Christmas is because relative to their age, it's a huge portion of their life. So for a four-year-old waiting for the month of December for Christmas to show up is like a 48-year-old waiting for nine years, just relative to their age, right? It's like why an aunt walking from here to there is like me walking from here to Uganda, right? Same idea. In the light of God's eternity and this internal, eternal inheritance we have, the momentary trials we experience are a blip on the radar. They're very brief. So brief, in fact, they're not even worth being compared to the eternal weight of glory that's to be revealed. 
And so Peter wants you to know that your trials, though they feel very long now, in light of forever, they won't even register on the radar of your personal history. Remember that when you're in the midst of a trial. And he also says that they're necessary. They're necessary. Now, our friend Jared is getting ready to go off to Marine Corps recruit training in two days, Jared? One day. Say goodbye to Jared. Next time he comes back, he's going uh, to look a little different. I can tell you from personal experience, it was the worst three months of my life being in boot camp. You're just being, sorry, Jared, you might want to plug your ears for this part. You're just being yelled at all the time. You're running everywhere. You're marching everywhere. You don't realize how much pain it causes to drive your heel into the deck when you're marching. Like, we don't normally march, walk that way, right? And so your whole body is adjusting to the food and the environment. And by the way, Paris Island in the summer is no one's choice for vacation location. Uh, it's just sand fleas and heat, and it's miserable. And it was tough. But you go through all of that, knowing what you're getting into, knowing what you're getting into, you endure that necessary trial in light of what's being promised on the back end. At 13 weeks, you get to hold in your hand that eagle, globe, and anchor and call yourself a United States Marine. And that's what thousands of young men and women have done throughout history. And they go through that grueling trial because they want what's on the other side. It's a necessary component of achieving the outcome you set yourself to do. And for those who love Christ, and for those who want to see with their own eyes, though we don't see him now, we rejoice, and we believe that we will see him, and we want to lay hold of this imperishable, undefiled, and incorruptible inheritance that's awaiting in glory, it's necessary to go through these trials from time to time. It's a necessary component of this life. And Paul, or excuse me, Peter here wants us to know that. And he wants us to know that these trials are grievous. I fear that far too many people in the church think that we shouldn't respond like human beings when we go through difficult times. And we have this sort of buck up and buckle down mentality when it comes to difficulty in this earthly life. And I don't see that in Scripture. I see Peter being really honest here about difficulties. They're grievous. They hurt. They're painful. And they cause real tears. Jesus weeping outside the tomb of Lazarus. Paul experiencing anxiety on behalf of the churches to whom he was given to minister. Peter running out crying after denying his Lord three times, not to mention the martyrdom of countless thousands and hundreds of thousands of Christians across history. Trials are grievous, and it's okay to grieve. Paul in 1 Thessalonians tells us that we don't grieve like those who have no hope. He doesn't say that we don't grieve. He simply reminds us that our hope is rooted in something beyond the momentary grief-inducing circumstances. And so we look through those things by faith and lay hold of the reality that lies beyond them. And we place our hope in something more real than now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's okay to grieve, brothers and sisters. And when people tell you otherwise... I think they're causing, we're causing harm when we do that. 
Now, we don't grieve like those who have no hope, but we have hope, and it's a sure hope, and it's rooted in Christ's resurrection, and it's ours by faith, and God causes us to be born again into it, and he keeps us for it, and all of those things work together for our good, even in the midst of trials. Last thing I want to say as we bring this to a close. These trials occur out of God's love for us. God's children are more precious to him than all the gold in the world could possibly be to us. He uses this precious metal as an example of testing by fire. If you want pure gold, you need to melt it down and burn it so all the dross disappears in order to have as close to perfect precious metal as you can get. And if you were to wake up tomorrow with all the gold in all the world accrued to your bank account, it could not compare in value to how much God loves you, his children. Do we think about God's love like that? Do you think about God's love for you in those terms? That he loves you so much, so much, that he sent his only son to die for your sins. There is no expression of love in this world that compares to what God has done for us. His enemies, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love for us is so great that his only and most precious son was brutally killed and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. We lose sight of that in the midst of trials, don't we? And we respond to difficulties in anger, in bitterness, in frustration, in fear. And we lash out at God and we lash out at others because we forget that God really loves us. If he loves us so much that he would let his son die for us, how can we doubt him? How can we doubt him? Jesus says it like this, if you who are wicked parents know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father not give you his Holy Spirit when we ask? Now perhaps, perhaps you're thinking to yourself, I love this doctrine of the hope of the resurrection and the hope that's to be found in Jesus Christ. But I struggle sometimes. I struggle. I feel hopeless far more than I wish I did. Relationships are hard, and they're always, I feel like I'm always in some broken relationship. I feel like I'm always getting sick and getting older. I feel like I'm always worried about what I see on the news or what's going on in the world around me. And I read these promises from God, and I think, gosh, where are they? Like, when is this going to happen? I pray, and I pray, and I pray, and this, my child is still wayward, and my spouse is still bitter and angry, and my job is still miserable, and my health is still failing, and where is it? Maybe, maybe I'm not promised the hope of heaven because my faith is so weak that I struggle through life. I want to leave you with an illustration that I heard from Tim Keller. Um, we prayed earlier for the Reader family and for Briarwood. Tim Keller died last week as well, the day after Dr. Reader did, after a long battle with cancer. 
And he was hugely influential on many of us here and even dear to some of us personally. Some of you, I should say, personally. And he tells this illustration of the Israelites walking through the Red Sea. And he says, there they are, and God has parted the Red Sea with his power, and it tells us that the walls of water stood up on both sides, and the Israelites are passing through on dry ground. You can picture this in your mind, can't you? And I've, I've preached on this text before, and I remember thinking, imagine children walking through and running their hands through the wall of water, like being in a living aquarium. You just run your, and you can see the fish swimming next to you, but it can't come through because the water stops, and you're on dry ground, walls of water on both sides. Keller says, among the Israelites were some whose faith was so strong that they ran through the dry ground, dancing and skipping and cheering and singing and praising God for the great work he had done. Look at this. Look at this. Walls of water on both sides. Look at that fish right there. Look what God's doing, and this ground is dry, and we're all together being saved, and we're going to come out on the other side, and he's going to crush our enemies with the water, and God is great, and look how glorious this is. And there are some of those people here in this room And you go through trials just like that. But among the Israelites were some who were walking through those walls of water going, is it going to come down on me now? Is it, I mean, how is it staying up? I don't understand the physics of this. And, oh, that fish is huge, and it came really close to the edge. And where's my child going? This, this is really dry. It feels kind of quicksandy, actually. I wonder if I get to the middle, if I'm going to sink in, and the Egyptians are going to come in, and they're on chariots. They're going to overtake us. And they were terrified the whole way through. And here's the point. Every single Israelite made it to the other side. Because it's not the clarity or the strength of their faith, but the object of their faith that saves them. And so when you go through trials in this life and you feel like depression is setting in and your heart just can't believe it all and you worry that your faith is too weak, to bring you all the way home, remember, it's not your faith that brings you through trials, and it's not your faith that brings you home. It's Jesus Christ, and he never fails. And that's good news. That's what we hope in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son and for our salvation that's been secured in him. Would you grant us increased hope and increased faith? Increase joy in trials and confidence in this earthly life, during this earthly life, that we will see him face to face. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.